Welcome to a special sub-series of the East Green, West Green podcast called Hollywood on Hong Kong. In this short series, we're going to be looking at select Western film portrayals in and about the Fragrant Harbor. Joining me on this journey of cinematic revisitation and sometimes discovery is a podfather of Asian cinema, founder of the Podcast on Fire Network, Mr. Kenny B. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, I would always like to credit Mr. Stuart Sutherland for really forming the Podcast on Fire Network. Um, so uh, though I'm not going to claim sole credit at any point. And, and by the way, if uh, if quality equal quantity, then yes, I would be the podfather. But Paul, I'm just a guy that likes to talk about <laughs> movies. Aren't we all? But, but, thank, but thank you, though. Yes, indeed. Um, so if you are not familiar with uh, Mr. Kenny B's work, um, can you tell us a little bit more about what you do, sir? We cover a variety of uh, uh, movies across Asia. First started with Hong Kong cinema in in the show called Podcast on Fire before we had more than one show, uh, before we turned into a network. And that show had always, you always travel in terms of um, how you achieve focus and intent and what you want the show to be. So obviously we covered a variety of stuff and not just old movies old jackie movies old salmon movies uh, and we it's it, certainly that is the mission statement now for that show that uh, it, it's hong kong cinema new and old yes but really it's the um, it's a audience friendly one um whether we talk action or not we talk high profile movies um, uh, again if they involve those people i mentioned or not that's uh, uh, that's not a requisite but uh, um as always, I, I usually say this, um, the, the expansion of all of this comes from my own interest in, uh, let's talk uh, Taiwanese cinema, because I, have, I, I like Taiwanese cinema of a certain kind. Let's talk uh, adults-only cinema from mainly Hong Kong, because I like that stuff. And there, there's context to be found and talked of, while still having fun with sometimes and even mostly goofy uh, Category 3 movies in that case. But, uh, but Japan on Fire show started... Uh, through off-air conversation between uh, between the guys mainly Stuart and uh, and uh, Mike Banner, and uh, we just started talking about Japanese movies, and now that's a show that uh, I produce. So I like the journey of uh, how you expand and find focus, and after all the said and done, it is about getting together with people you like and talking about movies, and hopefully in an informed way with a little bit of context and with an aura of fun as well. So. Um, that's uh, an example of what we attempt to do. Uh, we, we, I, I'd hate it for, to be too stuffy, but then again, you need to be serious. Sometimes you can't talk. Yeah, you know. You remember we did a coverage on um, the uh, war atrocities of Unit Seven Three One during World War Two that were made into uh, uh, a couple of exploitation movies, uh, Men Behind the Sun, mainly. And you can't. Uh, you can't joke about that stuff because that's history. And therefore, we took our time to research and tr- try to provi- uh, provide that context that, that led into how the movie um, 
uh, went about its business. Uh, and in that case, Men Behind the Sun, difficult movie, but not a bad movie. And it's an interesting journey to be sure because, I mean, even for someone fairly well-versed in Hong Kong cinema, and I guess for a lot of the audience too, I mean, many people probably listening to this show and to your show would be familiar with, you know, the hijinks of uh, Stephen Chow or, you know, the um, comedy and drama of somebody like Andy Lau. But looking at a title like Men Behind the Sun and for myself saying, okay, uh, Category 3, probably going to have some torture involved, war movie, not really my thing. But then after listening to you guys talk about it, it really sounded like an important film for the era. Not not technically per se a great film, you know, still falling within the realms of what some would consider an exploitation style film. Not mm-hmm. really my cup of tea, but really after you guys talked about it, I said, I need to watch that. You know, I need to, I, I'm probably not going to like the content of it, but I think it's an oh, important no. enough film that it should be something that I see and that experience. And and that came from the discussion that you guys had on that particular show. Well, I'm glad because it, it, it's fun to do it. And we, we have, you know, if I may say so myself, we have a chemistry, me and Joshua, where we understand the, uh, the intentions, right? No one is on his or her own island and do and have an idea of how to do a show. No, we, we sort of sync up and just like we do as well. Like we, we understand show content, but... I don't know how you feel. Even though you understand what you perceive to be a good show and listenable show, it it just happens sometimes when you start talking, right? And let the convo take you where it takes you. But and and, uh, and your you guys are certainly so skilled that um, focus comes easy. To you deliver content and a show, uh, but it's also a conversation. You know, guys getting together over Skype in a way, so it's not as difficult as I make it out to sound uh, um, uh, like a, like it sounds when I'm talking about it. So um, I enjoy that because it, it's never ever not fun, even when we talk uh, the harsher stuff. And I guess that sort of serves the basis for this sub series. If you're familiar with the show, the East Green West Green podcast, normally we look at contemporary Hong Kong cinema or you know whatever what's happening in other platforms, um, such as Netflix, trying to keep it somewhat related to Asian cinema. But one of the things I always wanted to do was sort of expand out. And I've always sort of joked with Kenneth about just not having the time and the stamina to do what he does with, you know, just a massive network of various shows on various topics. Um, But having a bit more free time right now, because I'm not actually able to get out and see a lot of contemporary cinema because of family and life at the moment... I realized I did have a little bit of time to kind of explore this idea I had, which was to program a sub-series that looked at a range of films that focus on Hong Kong, which is a, you know, a, a very big interest of mine even to this day, and how that place is perceived sort of through Western gaze, through, you know, the Hollywood gaze, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and then think, talking about that with somebody who's got experience with cinema from around the world and and getting their views on that. So I approached Kenneth and he very graciously agreed uh, to come on this series. Not going to be a long series. Um, I plotted out sort of a season one, um, maybe somewhere between eight and nine episodes, um, depending on the availability of the titles that I've selected out that will be released over the course of uh, 2018. And um, if you guys like it, if we get good feedback on it, um, I've started to look at titles for the possibility of a of a series two. Um, but I think that the titles we're going to touch on in the series first series are some of the more well known stuff. A few things that were new to me, 
um, and, uh, you know, some stuff that hopefully can be an introduction to people out there who are also interested in Hong Kong and um, not just sort of Hong Kong cinema, Hong Kong, but how it's been portrayed elsewhere as well. Um, so we're going to start. So we're, so we're reviewing Breakfast at Tiffany's then, is that it? Yeah, maybe it's some Isn't point. It? <laughs> so that's sort of famous. <laughs> maybe he wasn't even playing a Chinese person. Um, whoever did that rather uh, absurdly yeah. over the top. But um, maybe he was playing a Japanese person in that one. It's, um, you know, that's one of the challenges with this series because I had to set some guidelines. And I, you know, I, I did, you know, you can look at a Wikipedia search of, of, you know, films that take place in Hong Kong and start to go from there and then look at, you know, sort of connect the dots in other ways. But um, one of the key things that I really wanted to set as the main parameter was it's a film that either is about Hong Kong or the majority of it takes place in Hong Kong. So mm. we're not going to be getting to some films that might be well known for being associated with Hong Kong, such as, you know, there's a couple of James Bond titles, you know, Man with the Golden Gun and others, You Only Live Twice, Mar Never Dies. They happen in Hong Kong, but they're not really in Hong Kong for a long period of time. Um, uh, one of the Christopher Lee movies, for example, um, one of the Fu Manchu movies was shot in Hong Kong, but it's not actually taking place in Hong Kong. It's supposed to be some oh. northern province province in China. So I did a little bit of weeding out um, based on those parameters. And we might come back to, you know, certainly talk about some of those films in the context of some of the films we're going to be seeing. Um, but hopefully it will be uh, of interest to listeners out there. And um, it's certainly of interest to me. And in some cases, I think Kenneth is going to be experiencing a few new films, films that he hasn't seen before, and we'll be getting his very interesting take on these as well. So we're going to start off this series right off the bat with a film that is appropriate as a starting point, not because it's a great film um, per se, but because it is about the starting point of Hong Kong, and that is the film Type Han from uh, 1986. So we're going to take a short musical break with some thematic music from the score, and we'll be back to get into our discussion of the 1986 film Taipan. And welcome back. So our first film in this subseries, as we said, is going to be Tai Pan. Uh, this comes from director Daryl Duke. This was his last cinematic work, and one wonders if that's due in part because the film did not do very well um, commercially. 
it had a bit of a troubled history. Um, there was um, an attempt to make this film going all the way back to um, the 70s. Um, Run Run Shaw had bought the rights from MGM um, and was planning to do a collaboration with Universal uh, to make the film for around $12 million. There was a sque- screenplay written, but no film eventually got made. And I guess this is the case... You know, in in some cases, they they go to certain stages of a film and then it just gets scrubbed because of reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then in the 70s, um, Jorge Allen Villu, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, obtained the rights and um, an actor, George McDonald Fraser, was hired, or sorry, a a writer was, uh, George McDonald Fraser was hired to adapt the novel. They got approval on the script and uh, got uh, Steve McQueen, who was going to be the star. Now, I mean, Steve McQueen doing uh, a Scottish accent. I don't know how that well that would have worked out. Uh, <laughs> but he later dropped out of the project. Um, Roger Moore was briefly attached. And um, again, that might have been uh, a very interesting iteration if it ever came to pass. Um and uh, I think there was mention of Sean Connery at one point uh, as well. And uh, Sean was a big favorite, um, reportedly, of the author of the novel, James Clavell, as well. Um, but none of those came to pass. Eventually, the rights passed over to Dino De Laurentiis and his group. And the popularity of the Shogun miniseries starring Richard Chamberlain, which I remember seeing as a kid, and I was talking about this with Kenneth, um, I don't have much memory of this. I think it was like at a time when miniseries were becoming all the rage because I want to say there was another one that my parents watched, which I never could go in the room for because it was just insanely boring at the time for me as a kid called <laughs> The Thornbirds or something. Yeah, my, my mom watched that. She loved Richard yeah, Chamberlain. And uh, so did my mom. But I was very interested in Asia. So when Shogun came on, I was like there and, and watching it. But I don't remember much. I remember Richard Chamberlain got peed on. Um, by one of the uh, Japanese samurai at one point, and uh, that I, I don't know if it, it wouldn't say it scarred me for life, but it was a very impressionable <laughs> image that I still remember to this day. And so, because of the success of that, they decided to um, go ahead with this um, with this production. This was the first English language movie shot in China. So, uh, you know, it's an, that's an interesting sort of historical note. It's too bad it did not. It, they did not make a better film to sort of merit that uh, uh, little bit of history. Um, and the story itself, if you're not familiar with it, is based on the character of Dirk Struen, um, who is many of the characters in the novel um, are loosely based on real people. So uh, Struen and his founding of the Noble House is um, based on a character named William Jardine and the actual corporate company Jardine Matheson, which still has corporate roots in and around Hong Kong um, to this very day. Although over the years, it's passed over to, you know, subholding companies and, and you know, names have changed and umbrella corporations and, and things like this. Um, and of course, a lot of this ties in with the um, East India Trading Company as well, which was a big British powerhouse of trading uh, at the time as well. So many of the people that appear in the novel and appear in the movie, their names have been changed through, you know, narrative license or creative license, but they are based on um, real people and the real event of the founding of Hong Kong by the taking of it, you know, 
somewhat by what they call would call gunboat diplomacy um, and the first and second opium wars. So, Kenneth, you had not seen this film. I'd seen this film multiple times over the years. I actually would Why? use snippets of it <laughs> to, to show students, um, you know, um, a few of those his, somewhat historical segments. Right. But uh, you had not seen this. So let me throw the ball over to you and let's give your brief take on it. Well, uh, technically, it's a uh, slam dunk. The, Dino and his group, they certainly don't uh, skimp out on the budget, but... Uh, I don't know. It, it it it's not a good film as such, and uh, it's not the fact that it's a historical piece, which I I, I can have a problem with because I'm I'm not really a historical histo- history buff, and I can have trouble absorbing that unless the movie makes it really clear to me of time and place. And and I guess this does. Uh, the the problem is that um, I don't know if um, this execution of it is uh, is equal to exciting because the, the material is about trading you know and uh, trade wars to a degree but it's not an action movie so we, we are sort of stuck with uh, a nice glimpse into history but it's not that exciting to follow the developments and the rivalry concerning the the trade of it all the trade merch <laughs> trade merchant and how and how this um you know how hong kong is formed and all the um, effects that has and uh, when you break it down on paper, there, there's some interesting subtext, of course, in terms of Brian Brown's character's reasoning for doing what he does and um, and why it should involve opium, for instance. But that's all on the paper, really. And and I, I, I feel that the movie didn't really grasp me uh, after I was clear on its mission statement. Uh, technically, it does. And uh, there are some good performances here. Unfortunately, I, <laughs> uh, our lead performance is, uh, has some problems. Uh, maybe lack of direction and guidance, certainly accent-related problems uh, here. But uh, I'm sure we'll get into that. I'm sure you have better, elo- more eloquent notes than me on Brian Brown's. Uh, there, there was a need for his accent to be a certain way, <laughs> right? Because it's based on someone that's from uh, from from a certain place. But uh, it, it it takes me out of the movie to be honest. Uh, um, so, but but an easy enough watch. And I, uh, but what I enjoy uh, mainly, and I'm sure I'll get into this, is the, the scenes with Brian Brown and Joan Chen. They won me over eventually. There's some good stuff there between them and their interaction. Yeah, this is an interesting point too, especially when we talk a little bit about Joan Chen. This being her first film um, and her her sort of first performance, she's of course now known as a you know classic actress who's been in multiple roles and many iconic roles over the years. Um, what specifically about the accent uh, was was grating on you? Well, the thing is, if you watch any scene with Brian Brown um, out of context, it doesn't seem like the Scottish accent is off but for me it came off as him trying to uh, nail it a little bit too hard and therefore the natural aspect of the performance got a little bit lost with brian who's australian really trying hard to hit those real scottish things saying i and uh, dinner and uh, all of that and and i thought that was um it it never became natural for me. I mean, he he does a pretty good job, but it it seems like he his focus was so intense that the the natural and charming and present performance got a little bit lost underneath his uh, attempt to really 
nail a Scottish accent down. Unfortunately, a lot of the movies dubbed too, so that took me out of um, out of the picture a little bit. Um, maybe that was due to production problems and sound. Who knows? But uh, uh, but but thankfully, most of the time it seems like we got the the actual actors uh, doing their their ADR. Uh, but it was. Um, it was sort of uh, almost. It was trying so hard to be Scottish in certain scenes. A lot of uh, Chinese didn't smell, and uh, they go. They, they they try to add the Scottish flavor over and over and over again in certain soul scenes, which seemed a little bit too excessive. Again, I'm not a linguistic expert, but for me, it it, um, it never it never uh, you know the nail never uh, never came into play there. He didn't nail necessarily the performance. And if I'm being honest, it doesn't look like anyone is. Um, no, the director in this case, which I know nothing of, it, it doesn't seem like it has much of a, you know, direction that inspires the actors. To be honest, so sometimes the actors are, you know, rattling off what they need to rattle off uh, in a way. Uh, so yeah, so no, no real, no real bad job. It just uh, seems uh, seems a little bit uh, medium and average. So the film itself, uh, in terms of sort of the narrative points that it picks out of the book, because the book is so much more expansive than. Um, what they actually show us in the film. Um, it starts out pretty much with the burning of Canton with um, the, the character they name as Commissioner Lin based on a real um, sort of viceroy who was sent down by the emperor to kind of stop opium uh, from being traded um, because of corruption, because, you know, people were taking um, bribes and hush money. Opium was being freely traded in uh, the port of Canton, and so they send this commissioner down to sort of stamp it out. He was known as being very honest and and sort of beyond uh, temptation when it came to corruption. Um, and so they start at this point in the film and kind of go from there with a, a few key points. Um, and one of the things they think the film doesn't do very well is really convey a sense of time. So we get sort of the mm -hmm. the burning of Canton and the um, expelling of the traders back to Macau. And then from there, we go on to very quickly the founding of uh, Hong Kong, which happens yeah. after the first Opium War, right? And, and basically, the, they, they set up the treaty and um, the, what in China is now known as the unequal treaties. And then very quickly, you know, um, things, political things uh, start happening. But there's not really a lot of action, I think, as Kenneth says. And this is a, f a film that's centered on a story about you know, pirates, basically, um, of mm -hmm. all sides. And there's a lot of pirates in the novel uh, that, that never re actually show up here. Um, but we do get a few kind of Hong Kong tie-ins in terms of Hong Kong cinema. Um, we'd have Russell Wong, who appears here in a brief cameo. And we also get a very, very brief cameo by Chen Quan Tai, Yes. Um, who, you know, blink and you'll miss him kind of a thing. Um, so it's interesting that they decided to, I guess maybe that was one of the reasons they were able to get film rights in China was by bringing on some uh, Hong Kong, China-based actors at the time. It's unclear who he is because they never directly name him um, as a sort of pirate character. There is a famous pirate character, Wu Kwok Choi, who's in the story, who's mentioned in the films. I'm not sure if he is him because... During the pirate attack that happens, there's like what five guys, so it's not mm. like a, it's not like a Pirates of the Caribbean thing where you're getting ships doing broadsides and you know big battles or anything like that. So, I guess for the era, 
it was deemed action enough for uh, what what they wanted to do and what what they could do. Yeah, um, yeah. They save the uh, set pieces for uh, for the back end of the film, but they they do, they mostly involve uh, personal confrontations rather than um, action set pieces, like you like you just described. And a couple other people worth mention: um, Janine Turner, who was pretty, you know, much rising on the scene at the time, um, plays Siobhan Tillman, a sort of American socialite um, with political connections back to America. And uh, Kira Sedgwick as Tess Brock, the daughter of Tyler Brock, the key rival of Dirk Struan or the Taipan. Um, and it's really the rivalry between these two that sets up the main form of antagonism mm-hmm. um, throughout the film. And, and that's pretty much the rivalry that exists in the book. The one thing I'll say about the film is that the, the segments that they took out were pretty much exactly as they were in the book for the most part. They they rearranged a couple things in terms of a sequence of events when they happened, but pre- a lot of it's pretty direct from the book. A lot of the dialogue is pretty direct from the book, especially Mei Mei's dialogue and the way she talks with this kind of uh, Chinese-slash-English hybrid with a Scottish accent kind of thrown yeah, on Yeah, she's top. picking up the, the slangs, so yeah. to say, which is adorable, actually. She, she says both I and I are, a yeah. mixture of that, So, which is uh, why I enjoyed those two a lot. And uh, because, uh, again, I, I do pay attention to the movie, but I, I, I do need to ask you, was the conceit there that... Um, she was bought by Brian Brown's character, or she was uh, originally a maid of some kind. Or what was the deal? They do get along, so it isn't um, an oppressive relationship. But uh, what was the true deal there between Brian Brown and, and Joan Chen? Yeah, so he he she was bought by him to be his concubine, mm. um, and her relationship, who she's bought from, they don't really go into in the story, but um, it's all very political in, in the novel. Um, and also his half-son, so he has a British son, uh, Cullum, who's set to become the heir of the noble house, played by Tim Guinea. And then he has a, 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 another son, um, and that is the uh, half-cast, as they call it in the novel, Gordon Chen, played by Russell Wong, who is an interesting character because he has connections... He, he's sort of the intermediary, um, and he has connections to both sides, the Chinese side and the British side through his relation with his um, father, even though he's not, you know, he's not given the Struan name because he's, he's half caste, he's half Chinese. Mm. Um, and his, so he, he is the son from um, Struan's previous concubine, who he then sold into another house um, to be first wife. Um, and so one of the things that Clavel does in his novels, he tries to rationalize all this, you know, the sort of having a concubine, the buying and selling, you know, into a house. If it's a good house, you know, you gain great face and this kind of thing. So he, he, he goes to great extent to write about sort of the Chinese way, the Chineseness, And at the same time, he brings in characters like Cullum with the sort of British... Catholic Christian centric view of you know well this is polygamy and this is wrong and this is against the church and you're a bad person and and so he he tries to balance these two views 
um, in, in the novel. And there's a they touch on it slightly, but they never really get into it in the in the film so much. It's just you know the Taipan is the Taipan, and and yeah. But the thing uh, uh, that is the most interesting in the film is is Truans sort of duality and uh, in terms of he's called you know a devil and a murderer and a fornicator by both his son and other people and i was interested in that because uh, it maybe it's ambiguous maybe it's not clearly conveyed if he uh, is fine with all of that you know in the name of trade in the name of capitalism then you do what you gotta do uh, but it's not truly a he, he isn't acting, uh, he's not a you know a rough character or a rogue that uh, imposes his will through violence, at least not on screen. And for all intents and purposes, despite t- taking a while to get, adjust to Brian Brown's accent, again, that, that, that's my problem and my fault, that I could extract those... Um, him you know being in conflict with his son a little bit over all those elements and i think that is probably you know 90 percent greater in the book but the movie at least uh, added that without it being like ham-fisted like we're not gonna have a dialogue about my character depth um, I, I thought that was inter- interesting enough but the problem is also that i in the end i didn't care that much or grasped everything concerning that but the there, there was that element there, and uh, that wasn't disinteresting, um, uh, uninteresting uh, at all, actually. Yeah, we, we get a little bit deeper into some of the points of criticism of the film, I think, especially by today's standards. Um, you know, it still very much smacks of aspects of Orientalism. Um, Struan berates his, his concubine Mei Mei for wearing a European dress, and so that's a whole big scene in the book, and it plays out in in the film um she knows she he's holding a big ball for the noble house and all the the europeans and westerners are invited and of course no chinese are invited um she's not able to attend um but she wants to make a big show of of having a dress for him and he kind of he says he's surprised and she loses face and so it's it's a big scene and he has to berate her and and sort of um you know He's supposed to beat her. He, he you know, he he, he just kind of makes a show of it because he doesn't really want to do it um, for her to gain her face back. Yeah. But um, he still berates her in verbally by saying, you know, some something along the lines of European clothes do not suit you, right? Which, I, you know, whose view is that? Is that really Struan's view, or is that the author's view? Because you get a film like contrasted with something like Wong Fei Hong where you have yep. a, have Rosamund Kwan come in with Western attire. And she's looked at strangely by, you know, Wong Fei-Hong and his, his contemporaries, but she looks fine. I mean, it's not like Western clothes don't suit, um, you know, somebody of, of, of Chinese heritage. That's just yeah. an attitude that is sort of there and, and presented. And, mm-hmm. of course, they give her... It's a hideous dress. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a, uh, the colors are pretty, pretty, um, pretty out there. Yeah, and and that's I guess by design because the character goes and to Macau and has it made, and you know is just basing it on sort of their own aesthetic rather than an actual. You know, they don't know a true European designer, don't have access to a true European designer. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the dress itself is he- hideous, but the idea that European clothes would not suit you know, a, a Chinese wife, a Chinese concubine. 
um, can be, you know, again, it points back to this, this idea of the sort of Western gaze um, or Orientalism, as uh, scholar Edward Said would, would point it out. But, you know, at least he isn't adhering to, because he says that you, you got to head to his son, that you got to adhere to um, uh, the Chinese way of looking at things. Uh, number one, you got to bath more often. Because uh, they don't get sick, and we do. So do do wash your clothes and bath. But he also, as you said, he doesn't beat her and doesn't uh, go through all that um, noise of uh, regaining face. So he just it, it's a show. It's a little bit of show, yeah. Just to get get her back, and that shows him at least not being like, like having embraced all uh, rules and regulations, yeah. for lack of a better word. And so. It makes those two fairly likable, and I, I was just curious if you thought they, you know, l- looking at the romantic angle of it all, because they're they are romantic with each other. Did you think that um, held up in any way, uh, chemistry-wise, in, in the story and stuff? Yeah, I think so. And you know, more to the point on Joan Chen, she was actually awarded in air quotes here uh, a golden raspberry as worst new no. star for her role that year. Um, which I do not think is well deserved at all. I mean, I oh. because you know when again when you hear the dialogue she's saying, and it sounds weird, that's because it's by design. That's how the character talks in the book, right? And pretty much they're lifting a lot of her dialogue verbatim from the book with the the thrown in you know Scottish accent at times and the mixing of some. Uh, Chinese. So I really think, as with many awards, you know, people always say with things like Oscars, you can never remember who the Oscar winner was for Best Picture from like four years ago. Was it deserved? I don't think so. Not at all. I think she was fine. I think she had fairly solid chemistry with Brian Brown. I was not a huge Brian Brown fan. I remember, what was the one film he did? Uh, FX or something. FX, yes. Um, (laughs) You know, which was fine. Um, And uh, so I thought, yeah, for the two of them, they had um, uh, a solid chemistry, and it worked well in the context of the story. And I was never rooting for him to, like, dump Maymay and get with Siobhan or any of the other characters who were sort of pining after him. Yeah, they, they had a little playful nature going on. And she, I mean, she, she's played up sexually, yes, and she parades around in uh, see-through um, nightgowns and lingerie and things like that. So uh, maybe if that's cheapening matters. I'm not too sure, but uh, it they still, um, you know, she she has an attitude about her and uh, she feels comfortable with him. Uh, so it's not always, you know, bow to your master, that kind of thing that goes on. Uh, but uh, she's comfortable and accepted to uh, that degree where she she has to say, you know, she can have a dialogue with her master without having to count out to him or anything like that. So uh, shame, again, a lot of her dialogue is dubbed because I think that's her. I, I, I do recognize that voice, uh, and and she speaks excellent English. Uh, it looks like at at this point, and s- certainly did when you know the general public got a big exposure to her through um, Twin Peaks uh, later on. So I don't know why so much was dubbed if it was production sound or it wasn't good in many scenes, uh, indoors or outdoors. In terms of what we don't get in the film, um, again, as we said, with a big novel, something of this size, a two-hour film is not really going to cut it in terms of uh, what you can tell with the story. Um, But there is a very important scene which connects through to the sequel, um, Noble House, which actually occurs um, decades later. 
Uh, and this is a scene with an interaction between Dirk Struen and one of the Chinese, um, the, the sort of Chinese equivalents of a Taipan over on the Chinese side, um, the minister Jin Kua. And at a certain point, um, Dirk Struen is forced to seek help from Jin Kua, um, where he gets uh, like what they call 40 lakhs of silver. I think lakh is a reference to the Indian monetary currency as, a, as opposed to tails, which they used in um, Chinese. But it's a massive amount of money, um, and it's going to help Dirk Struen get out of a bind. But one thing that happens that I'm... If memory serves, it, it it's not in this film, but they actually reference it later in Noble House. So I think the scene was shot and it was cut out. Um, is Jin Kwa passes over four broken uh, Chinese coins in a box to the Taipan. And these are to serve as favors, um, which can be called upon later by anyone who holds the other half of the broken coin. And this is sort of a major point of the negotiation um, that happens in that scene that's not in the film. But again, it comes to play in what we'll be talking about in a later show when we talk about the Noble House um, miniseries. So it was in an interesting omission, I guess, at a certain point they felt they weren't going to go forward with uh, more of the story or they decided to cut it out because they felt they didn't really have a great success on their hands and they didn't want to make things more complex than they could have. Mm. Um, but again, it, it, that's like, you know, it's, it's kind of like, um, um, you know, taking out the Luke, I am your father moment, right? <laughs> because it's like, <laughs> you know, that's such a major thing that connects through to other threads in, in later stories that why would you omit that if you didn't have plans to go forward? Do you, by the way, know the book really well, having read it several times, or you studied uh, up on the book? Before no, I've, I've, oh. I've gone through it once. Um, it's just too massive to go through multiple times. It's, uh. you know, um, so, you know, there are things that, that I remember from it. Um, and I just remembered, because I, I read the book after I saw, have seen, you know, seen the movie multiple times over the years. And so I make the connections to the scenes. Um, as I'm reading the book, you know, yeah. the, the dialogue and the things that are said, um, those scenes with the actors start playing back in my head when they come through the book. Then it gets on to new territory and new characters who you never see or hear of. Um, mm. For example, in the in the book, um, a major player in the book is um, Dirk Struan's brother, Rob, who's like his partner and who's there in Hong Kong for a good period of time. And he only gets mentioned like in one point where he's... He sends one of his crewmates, he's like, okay, go back to England and contact my brother Rob, who's going to do something in Parliament. And actually, through most of the book, Rob's not in England. He's there in Hong Kong with Dirk, um, and he's set to become the successor Taipan for a period of time before Cullum takes over. Um, and then things happen and, and things change. Well, well, it sounds like, you know, regular choices, adaptations make, right, uh, because... If you choose a, a doorstop for your movie, then there are going to have to be sacrifices and restructured uh, sections yeah. and things like that. So it, it's uh, it doesn't sound like a like um, an omission that they clumsily uh, made. It sounds like a conscious uh, choice. But yeah. um, 
I think um, I, it, it feels very Hollywoodized. I mean, it's really like they said, hey, we've got this story. What do we focus on? The relationship between the Taipan and his concubine. There's our love story. And mm. then we've got a little bit of intrigue and we've got a little bit of rivalry with his, you know, his longtime rival Brock. And, and that's the story. That's what we focus on. Mm. Um, <laughs> but, uh, by the way, it was amusing that... Um that you you definitely know who the rivals are because uh, they, they both do a good job. The actors who do, uh, play uh, Brock uh, uh, Stanton, something I don't remember the uh, man's uh, uh, John, uh, John, uh, John Stanton, and um, the guy who plays his uh, son Bill Ledbetter. You, you totally know that they are both uh, bad guys, and uh, so they, they sort of make it easy for us to know exactly. Uh, who to root for and who not to root for, especially the son um, who uh, has a sadistic streak in him. But but having said that, they both do a good job. They're, they're both present, given yeah. such uh, beats to work with because they're not given... Uh, I mean, the book might give them, obviously, substance and uh, nuance uh, and, and, and they, they still remain the you know the uh, the villains, if you will. But uh, in, the, in the movie, it's, it's very basic and you, you totes know uh, who, uh, which camp they belong to, if you will. Yeah, and on, on the Brock side too, it's interesting to see um, actress Kira Sedgwick as their daughter Tess, who ends up kind of in a romantic entanglement with um, Dirk Struan's son Cullum. You know, and this sort of sets up the um, a sort of Romeo and Juliet kind of thing, which actually gets mm -hmm. alluded to in in the book more so than the movie. Yeah. Um, but she is somebody that I haven't really followed her career much, but she popped up again in um, a current-running TV show that I like to watch called Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is, um, uh, I can't remember his name, Andy something from SNL. And, uh, Berg something, S-Berg. Yeah, uh, Sandberg, Sandberg, Andy maybe. Sandberg, yeah, and Terry Crews. And it's, it's a super funny show, and she shows up as kind of a, a villain, a rival kind of police chief from another department who causes trouble for them. And she's like a hard as nails kind of completely opposite of the role she plays here as, as, as Tess. And of course, you know, it's a couple of years later, but um, she still looks really good and she's a very funny actress. Um, so it's like uh, when she came on, I'm like, I've seen her. Who is that? Who is that? Where is she from? And then I finally recognized them and was like, oh, that's Tess. Tess, who never says anything, who just kind of Stanley, <laughs> you know, stands there quietly. So, um, and, and, and you know, all of that, I, I thought, I mean, the movie, maybe picked its time how much time it would spend on it but all of those sub stories and uh, the romantic rivalry not that it flew over my head but it did not grasp me at all in terms of this matters i i can connect to this conflict and now they're gonna have a fight in the rain and it's because of these various threads coming into one all of that is just basic on the surface stuff which yeah you know whose fault is that? Well, adopting a big book is uh, is uh, is uh, necessarily not the best idea, but it it certainly doesn't make for affecting um, back and forth and romantic rivalries. Uh, is my point? Yeah, indeed. And I, it's interesting too because we've got the idea of again these these conflicts coming up, and you know, and then something has to happen with one of the sons, and that again leads to the final confrontation with the fathers, and. There's an interesting point that I'll get to when we talk about the availability and the different versions of this film that exist out there. I guess before we kind of head into sort of the final aspect of this one point that I do want to touch on 
is the actual founding of Hong Kong itself um, when the British take possession. So this occurred in, I think, January back of uh, 1841. And so we get this scene kind of played out. Again, names changed to protect the historical facts here, but um, still an interesting look. And for the time, I mean, they've got some uh, mat work going on, mm-hmm. but you do have a pretty nice view of Hong Kong Harbor, you know, sands, all the the modern... Uh, developmental buildings there, pretty much nothing there, a bunch of British troops on the beach and an official proclamation from uh, Captain Glessing, who is not the real captain, but another captain, um, again, the name being changed, uh, reading out, you know, the the taking of Hong Kong, which becomes known as a street called Possession Point, um, an actual street that you can go and visit where this supposedly took place. Of course, it's in the film, it's right there on the water. And I remember going over to Possession Possession Street um, and thinking, wow, where's the water? And it's <laughs> like way far away because in subsequent years, they've reclaimed so much land that the harbor front has been pushed further and further and further out. So now you're like on this on the middle of this hill with no water in sight um, because of <laughs> all the development. Um, but it's interesting to, you know, see that scene sort of play out um, when... Yeah, and I've never seen that in a movie before, to my to my memory, which is why this was interesting historical nuggets to to sort of know of and read of and then see in the film, because I, I didn't know if it, if it was that simple. Uh, and, by, uh, if, and I'm not talking about how quick they get to the ceremony, but if uh, a land can be possessed that... Simply, I, I claim this now, and it seems like if you go by the movie, that this was all fair game. If you if you arrive on the land, then if you make a proclamation, then yeah, and if you got big big, big cannons, <laughs> exactly. that, that was the, that was the biggest biggest part of it, right? Do you think uh, they had to go to China to shoot that uh, for the movie, or is there a place somewhere else in Hong Kong that would be that scenic? Yeah, I don't. I, I I'm guessing they just found some, probably some smaller islands off of. Um, off of off the China coast that had no development and were able to do a little bit of, because you can tell there's a little bit of mat going on, um, mat, mat work going on in that scene. Excellent mat work. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't spot the seams yeah. uh, really, obviously. Uh, so uh, kudos to those old school artists uh, yeah. back and in the day. And if they were doing it today, it would be all be, you know, CGI and you'd go, hey, that looked like gray CGI. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, you know, kudos again to the to the visual effects um, that that go on in the film. There's not again an extensive amount, and one of the things you don't really get again, as I said, once it once the film starts going and it gets into the narrative, you don't get this sense of the semblance of passage of a lot of time. In fact, it just in some ways it kind of feels like a few days are passing more than anything else. But really, it's years that are going on with Struan bouncing back and forth between Canton and Macau and Hong Kong. And I think they go through in the book, it gets up to the Second Opium War and um, mm. the, the, the cessation of other territories um, in the north and things um, and all the politics that ensued around. But again, they kind of drop all that. And even with the pacing and the editing, once they're on Hong Kong, you really don't get the sense of the passage of too much time. Yeah, yeah, they throw throw it in there so you sort of oh wait a minute, I think they said six months pass, but you you're right, you don't get a sense because at one point uh, Struan is saying to his son that he should elope with Tess, and then they cut to them being on a ship and having a secret wedding, and yeah. 
somewhere in there they mention a year pass or something like that. But it's literally just a cut to the next scene and, and no title cards either to uh, make us understand that, we, which is a choice. Uh, would it have worked better with title cards? Like now, November, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Who knows? But, uh, but but you're right. It seems like there's a few months of action here and uh, uh, that's it. And so now here we are, you know, I guess over what? Uh, this was an 86, 96, to 30 years later. And we are in the age of Netflix and um, shows like uh, what Game of Thrones and Stranger Things and things that would could be considered as a miniseries, you know, more so than a regular sort of full-on 22 to 26 episode season. And part of me wonders, you know, all right, Hollywood, if you're out of ideas, you know, if you're struggling to do uh, a third remake of Spider-Man and, and things like this... <laughs> um, why not look at going back to some of this? Um, For sure. I, I don't know um, if Shogun is as dated as it seems to be in my mind, but I think this is something that could definitely, if it got the funding, they could go in with a Netflix and, and do a 12-episode a, a series um, and get more more stuff into it. I mean, again, there's a lot of stuff that goes on that we don't get here. You could still keep, you know... Um, a lot of what's here and expand on it and make it um, a bit more compelling perhaps um, for for the era it would be very expensive I think that's probably one of the reasons why nobody would want to necessarily take this on because it's such a firmly rooted period piece hey, hey I got an idea produce about 20 less comedy specials per year <laughs> on Netflix and then you'll, you'll have some money left over there you Start go, yeah. from there because there's way too many comedy specials like I've nothing against the comedians it's fantastic that they do their work but oversaturation we're, we're reaching that in terms of comedy specials for a while I thought all the Netflix new fictional series was approaching oversaturation but no I was wrong it's the comedy specials mm. and, uh, uh, all the, like when you scroll your feed it seems it seems like all there is now uh, yeah. is that or, or they're throw, throwing up a new anime like every other week that they've acquired well, from somewhere. Yeah, for sure. But uh, then again, we're we're a bit more um, uh, we would like that stuff a little bit better, yeah. I suppose. Uh, uh, can I just mention, by the way, I've never seen a typhoon de depicted so. I've never been in a typhoon, but man, do they depict this with their hearts. Mm. Because the wind machines that they throw at the actors and uh, everybody in the scenes. They're massive, man. They're, I I can't imagine what this set was like. Presumably an indoor set when, obviously, when they're in the sleeping quarters and the doors fly open and all that. But it looks great. I've never seen anything like it. So, again, technically, this movie hits it out of the park in certain sections and including the, um, the last 20, 30 minutes that includes, you know, various confrontations, but also they're in the eye of the storm. And it looks great and it's a rather thrilling to be honest because uh, it gets more destructive as the movie rolls on you think it's windy windy oh no it's gonna take down the entire house it seems like all right that's i think it for my final notes any final thoughts that you have sir no not really i mean a, a good byproduct of having watched a movie i wasn't super fond of is the fact that i'm not a history buff as i said and i have trouble absorbing such stuff uh, so it was nice to get a little bit more extra knowledge. And it led me to uh, wanting to uh, not read the book because I'm a horrible reader. I can't really focus on reading, but I added the audiobook. And audiobooks I consume uh, fairly frequently. Uh, a 32-hour listen, 
so of which is not the longest I've uh, encountered in my audiobook uh, excursions. That would be it. That was longer. But um, I, 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 I do want to listen to the book because um, I have faith that um, an, an interest, enough interest in the story that I want uh, the more expanded and expansive uh, uh, oral view in this case of it. So I'm, I'm, I, I do look forward to um, to getting into uh, getting into it. All right, let's talk a little bit about the availability. Um, again, this is a 1986 film. There are various versions of this that can be found out there. There are two DVD versions that exist, no Blu-ray to date. Um, if you're looking in the market for a DVD version, please avoid the one that is from Gary's. It is a Hong Kong release. Um, when you see the cover, what you see is basically Brian Brown um, holding on to Joan Chen. It's really kind of sort of a bus shot of the two of those and a big face of Jin Kwa, the, uh, mm. the, the Chinese emissary, and there's some Chinese writing on it. Um, this is a blown-up version. It is a, it, it is very grainy, um, and it has about 12 minutes uh, cut out of the film, the very oh. last 12 minutes of the film, to be precise. Um, the film ends basically where the typhoon, when the typhoon is happening with Brian Brown and Mei Mei together. And oh. that, that is a crime. Um, it's, oh, it's open-ended. It's, it's one thing to, you know, to edit out a little bit of violence here and there, but to actually change the ending <laughs> completely um, is, is a bit of a crime because there's more to the story, about 12 minutes more. And from what I could tell in watching both of the versions, it is just a complete hack of the final 12 minutes of the film. On that version. So avoid that version if you can, unless you already have it and you just, you know, want to be a completionist. But again, it's a terrible quality copy. And really, if you want the experience, just when you see Brian Brown and Joan Chen get together in the typhoon and they're kissing and you just plus stop. And that's the experience that you get. <laughs> um the standard DVD, the the Western release, is available for various prices. I've seen it super high, but also quite low, as low as about two bucks and forty seven cents over on, um, I think it was on Barnes and Noble. So you know your mileage may vary on how much you want to shell out for this. There's an LD version available, um, also quite cheap. I've seen it on eBay, uh, at least cheap in comparison to the original sticker price, which I think was close to a hundred dollars. Um, so you know, if it's also a uh, pan and scan, by the way. So if you want to watch it in widescreen, uh, the DVD is is the way to go. Yeah. Um, so you have that option uh, as well. Nothing on iTunes. I, I did a little search for it, so it isn't even available um, in HD on iTunes. Um, who knows why that is? Forgotten or locked up in uh, rights hell? Um, but uh, it seems like uh, this is uh, the fate of the movie. Yeah, but not a bad looking DVD and a good representation of. Of the visual splendor that the widescreen frame uh, offers up, because w w watching this cropped uh, in today is uh, not something I'd uh, recommend for something so well designed as, as the movie is. Because again, the, the technical um, crew uh, went to town on this movie and it shows. Yeah, and you know, just as sort of a side note, I thought I had read somewhere that um, Paul Fonaroff, the Hong Kong film critic, critic, had worked on this movie somehow. Um, right. And that I might have just had that in a dream or something. I thought that he was like an assistant director or uh, assistant cameraman or something. Some in some way he was attached to the crew on this film, but I could not find him anywhere in the credits. And that might just be something that I uh, uh, that completely does not exist in reality. But if you know different, please do write in. 
uh, and let us know. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this very first episode of Hollywood on Hong Kong with the film Taipan. Uh, let me throw the ball back over to Kenny B and uh, tell us where they can find out more about you, sir. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for bringing me on because uh, I wouldn't have made the excursion myself. Um, you sent a copy of the movie to me and I would have watched it eventually, but there, there is something... Um, that triggers in me when it is combined with work, which I know doesn't sound fun, but to me it is because I, I can I focus on the movie and its uh, points, pros and cons, and it is fun to do that work. And uh, I, I really appreciate uh, you bringing me on for that reason. But it's also a great idea. This uh, theme is actually a, a rather clever idea, Paul Hollywood on Hong Kong. So um, and 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 a good start indeed, as you have described. So. Um, you should uh, you should uh, map out uh, this series because I think you're onto something. And even if you, it's only for your sake to be able to, um, you know, create work and create structure and create a series to put up there for free to whoever wants to download it. That's said, you know, that's something you should reflect on with um, with with, sat- with satisfaction because um, uh, it uh, gets me um, excited that uh, this is a series now, regardless if I'm involved in the subsequent episode. But uh, So uh, there's a long way of saying that uh, it's a great idea, and thank you very much for letting me be uh, included uh, on it. And uh, therefore, I'm not going to plug that much other than the Podcast on Fire network is available on podcastonfire.com, and all the relevant links to wherever we are on social media is um, available right there for you. So that's me out buddy so thank you again well thank you for being here sir and yes you are along for the ride for as many of these as you are willing to put up with um, I, I, have, I have nothing else to do man and uh, if you say that the, the Noble House is a miniseries that gets me a little bit excited because that means that it may be and I'm just saying maybe I have no idea what that is like that there may be more uh, more substance and content there that uh, may equal quality, but who knows? It might be a crappy miniseries <laughs> Time with historical tell. significance. Yes. Uh, but uh, that, that's enough motivation. I'm, I'm aboard. Um, so, yes. So, thank you indeed. And please do check out all the work that uh, Kenneth does over at his site. Again, it's podcastonfire.com. And uh, in the interim, uh, we will, you know, be doing other shows between now and then. But our next episode of Hollywood on Hong Kong should be in a month or two. And as we mentioned, we are going to be focusing on the sequel of sorts to Taipan, um, the book that continues on the story of, of the Noble House itself, with that actual title, Noble House, which was made into a miniseries starring Pierce Brosnan in the 1980s. Um, so a little bit of a divergence from film itself um, to television, um, but uh, we're going to be coming back to talk about that and getting Kenneth's thoughts and my thoughts and any other interesting nuggets of note uh, when we can. So look for that coming soon. Thank you for being along on this journey with us. If you would like to get in touch with us, please do 
drop us a line over at our Facebook group. Um, that is facebook.com slash east s west s or of course over at our website that is congcast.com k-o-n-g-c-a-s-t dot com. If you like the show, if you don't like it, if you if we missed something uh, that you wanted us to talk about about Taipan, please do uh, let us know what you thought. As always, we will wish you good viewing and we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. I'm emulating Kevin right now. I always do. remember always uh, watching the VHS cover of this when I grew up because it uh, the poster was quite beautiful and had this big big image of um, Brian Brown in, in front of these um, uh, this uh, archway right um, mm-hmm. uh, one of the posters and uh, but, but it was never a movie I rented because I know I would have been bored by it as a kid mm-hmm. right uh, because it, it, it didn't it, w- it wasn't an action film but uh, when I saw that poster I was instantly taken back to my God, I passed that tape many times as I perused the VHS store for as long as I could, um, uh, you know, before I picked the movie in the end. So that was my only history with, with the movie in, in that <laughs> regard. So.